Welcome everyone to the Middlebrow Naval Gazer. In this formulation of the Middlebrow Multiverse, we will figuratively, and in some cases literally, stare at our navels by discussing topics related to philosophy and things going on personally with us. Listen to this beautiful sci-fi theme that we've composed, which is a little out of place in this context, and enjoy uh, Pete's abstract top three. Pete, what do you got for us today? So this week was one of deep personal reflection, apparently, and trying to find out my underlying both reality, morality, and sense of the world. That's I have three separate examples that have shifted my basic sense of place in the world, both physically and metaphysically. Wow. So we're going to get personal and philosophical at the same time? Correct. Bring it on. My first one has to do with a recent National Football League officiating controversy. It's not the controversy itself. What I do think the problem is, basically some refs that have blown a bunch of calls blew a huge call that decided the fate of a game and they got it kind of wrong maybe, but then maybe they didn't and maybe, anyway. Can we at least talk about what the what what call was it for my edification? Okay, this was the very first two point conversion try oh. by the Lions. You know what I'm talking about there. So, I do. So just give just give a brief overview of of exactly what happened. So what happened is the Lions are down by one. They have just scored a touchdown. They can kick a point after for for to tie the game, send it to overtime, or they can go for a two point conversion to win it. It's a risky move, and it's a tough one for the coach. Uh, their coach, I can't remember his name right now, Dan something. Sorry, dude, you're not you're not a big enough culture warrior yet. But maybe <laughs> this will put you into the into me knowing your name, becoming a household name. He is super aggressive. He's like, fuck them, go for it, right? Which is awesome. And they do, and they scored the touchdown, and they win with no time remaining to clinch the series the first time. The Lions would have done that since, I don't know. And they were going to do it over everyone's hated Cowboys in Dallas. It was very exciting. But then late a flag was thrown and the Sorry, can I can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah. I don't know if you understand this. What is Stephen A. Smith's problem with the Cowboys? What is his deal? Know. He has this like deep enmity or something towards the Cowboys. I do. Doesn't everybody? I don't like the Cowboys at all. I actively root for them to fail. Me too. And I just do it instinctively, like the way I would get under shelter in a storm or something. Just these people are <laughs> loathsome. You need to root against them. Like like a baby that just was born would slither over and breastfeed the same way it would slither away from any kind of Dallas Cowboy merch. <laughs> just instinctively, infant knows not to be associated with it. So, But you don't understand what Stephen A. Smith's whole thing is? Because he's got why. something with sure. the Cowboys that I don't understand. You, th- you think he's got personal beef? I don't know. He's just always like talking about the Cowboys and obsessively, you know, giving hot takes on them. Yeah. My guess is, is that there's some research somewhere that shows that the Cowboys fans are like, you know, the most invested NFL fans or something like that. And so he likes to throw meat around that. You think I'm sure Steve- that's all designed? Yeah. You think Stephen A. Smith is heavily research driven? I think somebody told him, hey, you know what really pops the needle when you talk about the Cowboys? Hmm. Every time you talk about the Cowboys, here's what it looks like. When you don't talk about the Cowboys, here's what it looks like. Try to get the Cowboys in. All right. <laughs> so the Cowboys are about to lose to the Cowboys Lions. Cowboys are about to lose. They did lose. It's over, and it's awesome. And then this flag gets thrown. The refs say it's a controversy because one of the guy who caught it was an offensive lineman, and he mm-hmm. seemed to go up to the ref, and apparently in the NFL, I don't even know this really. I act like this is something I understand. But, like, you have to tell the ref that you're an eligible receiver. Like, yeah, I know I'm lined up here, but I'm be, I, I can catch the ball. Mm-hmm. 
And then the ref tells the defense, that guy right there, normally he can't catch the ball. On this play, he can. Mm -hmm. So if you're a coach, you've got some gamesmanship going on where you're trying to like, I don't want to announce what my play is, but I also Mm -hmm. need to call this guy eligible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's some, no one really knows. So the idea is this guy goes up and claims, he says, and, and Goff, the quarterback and the coach and everybody else says they discussed this before the game. In pregame, they said, we might do this play. We're number 68 and number 70 reported as receivers. We want to do this. We want to do that. And here's how it would work. And everybody checks off. So then when you look at the replay, they blew the flag because they said 68 didn't check in as an eligible receiver. But it really looked like he did. And everybody said he did. And so then they made him redo it. And then the Cowboys had a penalty. No, then they had an offside. So they had to go back five yards. And then then they ended up losing the game and like the third try of it where the defense had like completely figured it out. But the Wait, element of they surprise. Got the- they got the offsides and then they didn't kick the extra point. Yeah, yeah, they didn't. It was weird. It was okay, too aggressive. So that's that's a problem for them, really. I mean, but I don't mean to interrupt your flow. I mean, I, that, no, I agree. I agree. It's weird. I, like the the weird thing is, I think I would go for the two point conversion the first time. Sure. I would definitely go for the kick the second time. And if for some reason that got blown, like I was gonna kick, and then there was an offside, then I'd go for the two point conversion again to mix it up. <laughs> but I would never go two point, two point, two point. That just seems crazy. You could tie up the game. You were playing well. Anyway, their head coach is real aggressive, and I applaud aggression on the uh, football field. Go get it. So anyway, it's this huge controversy, and the fact is is that the ref said, well, there's this rule, and it's like this, and they said, so it's a he said, she said, it sucks when it costs the game, and then there's all this conspiracy, which I wholeheartedly endorse, that it happened on like Cowboys celebration day of Jimmy Johnson and all this stuff, oh, so there's sure. no way the refs are going to let the Cowboys lose a close one at home because they're mm-hmm. the Cowboys, and if... Mm-hmm. Stephen A. Smith's going to be talking about it tomorrow. Anyway, Mm -hmm. what this all comes down to is what human beings have a fundamental problem with, and that is scrutiny. I don't know how familiar you are with Zeno, the ancient Greek thinker. Not terrifically familiar with Zeno. Okay. He has a paradox called Zeno's Paradox. And the oh, sure. Paradox. I've, I've, I know his paradox. You're familiar with this. <laughs> okay. If we're going to get into like the atomist, there's all this idea in Greek, in the Greek, like Hellenistic age, where they were talking about, okay, things are made up of small things or things are just complete. Mm-hmm. And this was like a real debate. Like this is before anyone had any ideas of cells or atoms or a matter of fact, they were called the atomists. Definitely pre-quantum. Yeah, for sure. This is 500 years before our Lord and Savior Christ. Yeah. So in the, in the modern age, you don't need a great thinker to come up with a paradox. All you need is quantum mechanics. Exactly. Anyway, so <laughs> put a pin in that particular. But the idea is, if you look, if you break things down and look too closely, how can anything ever happen? So he uses this example. The example I like is you shoot an arrow. Well, in order for an arrow to go from one place and hit the target, it has to go half the distance to that target. Could we all agree mm-hmm. on that? Mm-hmm. It has to at least reach half the distance. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it also has to reach half that distance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Does it have to reach the half of that? So now I'm down to the 16th, the 32nd, the 16th, mm-hmm. whatever, right? On ad infinitum. And the fact is, is they're kind of right because you can go infinitely into regression of measurement. And the problem with that is, is our brains and our skills and our desires are not designed for it. I'm not saying that you can't, with heavy scrutiny, figure out what the right thing is. I'm saying none of our brains and none of our systems are designed to handle that level of scrutiny. And so this is why there's like this whole thing about the NFL saying like, there's all this really 
high-end technology. Have you ever seen an NFL referee spot the ball? Yeah. It's like one of the most haphazard things you've ever seen. It's pretty rough. They pick it up, they twirl it a couple times, they talk to somebody, they walk over, and then they set the ball down on the ground, kind of where the guy was. You know, the crazy thing is is that they often get it right despite that. And I believe, I have a theory about refs and NFL refs in particular, that they have this kind of semi-photographic memory where they're able to watch the scene and then they're able to replay the scene in their head. And I can do this for a lot of things where you kind of replay the scene and then say, okay, where did he, you sort of watch it again in your head and you're like, where did he end up? Where was his forward progress stopped, et cetera. And then you spot the ball. Yeah. I'm positive it's a skill. What I'm saying is it looks pretty whatever and then whenever there is an issue you have to go into this review period right where they go take a look and we say where is his knee down where is Mm -hmm. the ball where Mm -hmm. is that in space how does this work Mm -hmm. and it's like it's ruining the game of football Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons one because it just takes so much time and builds and i like it because it builds tension on plays and it's kind Mm -hmm. of fun to hear the rules and that kind of thing i think as a football fan Mm -hmm. but also like we can always know where the ball is We have global positioning satellites (laughs) that you can see, like the United States military from space can see in high definition around the world. There is no reason why a sensor cannot be placed inside of a football. Just put a chip in the ball. Put a chip in the ball. And then tell what it is. No instant replay, no nothing. This is how far he went before his knee went down. This is what happened. This is where the ball, this is the forward progress on the ball. You put a chip in his knee? No, no. Well, you could, what you could do is see this is exactly how far the ball went, and then you could take a look and measure where the knee went down, I suppose. But you'd have a definite point in space. This is as far as the ball went. Was his knee down when? Okay, and then you could back it up and see it. You could you could do it like you're recording. You could have it on like a scroll of like just going back and forth until it finds the position to have AI say, the ball is here, the first part of his body touched the ground that wasn't his foot is here, and there it is. You could have that done, and I'm guaranteeing that can be done instantaneously today with today's technology. Yeah, sure. I mean, but they won't ever do it because that kind of scrutiny w- is is not a, it's not right. You have to have this measure of wiggle room. You just human beings just need it, and I mean for everything. Go take a look at the president of Harvard. She is resigned after she's an african-american woman first african-american woman to be president harvard university veritas and she was under scrutiny for her statements on israel and then she had some plagiarism issues but as you start to look at the plagiarism issues you see that the issues that she has were basically and i'm not an expert on plagiarism i'm not an academic but they were basically they come up almost all the time that these were not major ideas, but certain statements through things. The problem is, is that that happens to almost everyone in academia if you look closely enough. And if you look closely Mm -hmm. enough, if you put enough scrutiny to it, you get past the idea that she spoke of no longer has any meaning. We're just looking at words being the same as other words. And how often does that happen? And was that cited? And like, dude, honest mistakes happen in that. There's only so many ways to express yourself about hyper-specific topic. There's all kinds of Mm -hmm. reasons why that might happen and does happen. And I didn't hear the American right screaming about it when it happened to World War II historian Stephen Ambrose, who just lifted whole chunks. Or, you know, it, it just, this this level of scrutiny of looking at all of the work someone's ever done and then trying to put it into a context. It's the same thing with Me Too. Well, this guy said this in this beer commercial 20 years ago. No one's living their life designed to be under the scrutiny. No one's playing mm-hmm. a game designed to be under this level of scrutiny. We have got to just kind of allow things to happen i think and just sort of take the broader view as opposed to the more the atomist view i'm 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 against the atomists on this so your number three is scrutiny scrutiny too much 
we can't we can't survive under this scrutiny in anything we do in fun in work or personally we now have the tools to undertake intense scrutiny of nearly every aspect of life and what you're saying is we shouldn't that's exactly right well said danny that was the first because i keep noticing it like oh my god how would how does anybody survive under this kind of look can you defend everything you've ever written and we can now find it we can go track down your high school teacher and your paper and get it i mean we can certainly do that if we want to it's crazy. I mean, it's just like you're, you're, you have not designed a life to, to lead up under a heavy, intense vetting from a source that you're not sure exists about something you can have no idea about. Hmm. It's like worse than hell. How would you live like that? <laughs> you would just have this shadow over your head. There's nothing you can do. What's number two? Number two is related. It is, so you had said that you should just give yourself over to the algorithm because now you are getting suggested <laughs> all kinds of awesome things, right? Like things you didn't even know you knew. The targeted, targeted We're talking about ads targeted and experiences, ads. advertising, whether it's through algorithms for music, whatever it is, you should give yourself over to it because it's great. Well, I'm. Just, this is all, for me, very experience-based. I love the products that I buy through targeted advertising. I love the reels that I get through, through targeted algorithms. So based on that, I'm willing to... I'm willing to do a little trust fall where the person catching me is Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> you son of... Okay, I'm not willing to do that at all. But I suppose I am willing to do it for other things. I'm willing to do it for Tim Cook. I'm willing to do it for Jeff Bezos. I'm willing to do it for Bob Iger. I mean, I just, you know, whatever. Like, I'm totally doing... You're right, trust walls. But here's my problem with it. It really undermines your sense of reality when all of the information you get is tailored to you. It starts mm -hmm. to feel like maybe the world is made up. Like, if mm -hmm. you're going to blue pill yourself into the matrix, like, you know how people be like oh man, there was this like glitch in the matrix and I saw this cat twice. Like everything feels kind of like a glitch in the matrix a little bit. For someone who's not used to living like this, to have things suggested to you that are exactly what you're looking for is mm -hmm. kind of strange. It makes me feel like there's a God that is directly controlling me. <laughs> it's this weird sense of like kind of disreality where I'm like, am I, why am I noticing all these things so much? Is that because... So hold on, hold on. Before we get too deep into this conversation, what is the number two? Existential dread. I feel like the world feels less real. Existential dread related to targeted content? To a benevolent demon who is, who is giving me all of my things. <laughs> From the music I listen to, the things I buy, to the news I read. All right, preach. Preach like the cook from Moby Dick who gives the sermon to the sharks. Cook from Moby Dick? Who's the cook? Oh, it's like in the middle of the book where the captain is like, preach, preach, uh, give a sermon. And it's just all these sharks that are just eating the whale. He's like, preach. And he gives this absolutely genius, the, the best part of that book. And that's a it's a good book. There's a lot of really fun parts of that book, but this is the best part. We should read it sometime on the podcast, the sermon to the we sharks. Should. Anyway, okay. what you're going to do is you're going to do a uh, secular preaching it's not secular preaching it's secular questioning i feel more morpheus than the cook so the question to me is like all right i have a great service in apple news it allows me a bunch of magazine subscriptions under one subscription a bunch of newspaper descriptions under uh, subscriptions under one so i can be on the los angeles times and the the plains dealer and the atlanta journal constitution and the and the new yorker are all under one subscription so it's cool mm -hmm. and it offers mm -hmm. me this nice interface which is tailored to me 
based on my interest, which I select. Mm-hmm. But then I highly su- suspect that it's also based on which stories I read and all that kind of stuff because I keep getting more of certain things, right? And as someone who's been in news, I'm, I'm fascinated by how it works. So now here's my question. I'm 48 years old. I injured myself recently, hurt my finger at the gym. I have been searching online and through all of my devices for information about that. I broke the tip of my finger, so I'm looking like, how long is the time on that? What do you do for this? Is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do that? Is there a splint for this that works? Is there this or that? I've done a lot of research online. And now I find that I'm getting this bizarre, hyper-specific, uncanny valley responsive news back to me, which is like overcoming injury at 48. How at 48 years old, I was able to cut like whatever kind of fat or something. So now I'm like, am I just in the demographic where 48 is a good year for sales? But that seems really hyper specific to me. So now I don't know if the very news that I'm reading is being echo boxed back to me. I'm not on InfoWars doing this. I'm on four different, five different news subscriptions doing this. I'm a very thoughtful consumer and I feel like, oh, this is all getting preached back to me. Or am I being paranoid? And I've seen two things that are that say 48 and I happen to be 48. So I'm putting all this coincidence into it, which makes me wonder about all kinds of things in my life that is that a coincidence or is this happening? So I feel more like, I don't feel like Morpheus. I feel like Neo in that scene where it's like, is this the algorithm? Is the algorithm making me paranoid? Or is this just total coincidence? My critical thinking cannot solve it. I could see how this would trigger deep existential dread. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem. <laughs> the algorithm puts that into stark relief. Like, you might be paranoid, but they mm-hmm. might be designing for you your entire worldview. <laughs> and of course they are. What's number one? Risk aversion. Risk aversion is number one. These are all very abstract. I know. I know. I told you. I Listen, I was badly injured. I had a lot of time lying there in pain thinking about things. This is what happens. I'm having like a Proustian moment. So so risk aversion has captured your attention this week. Tell me how. In the courts, Danny. It's always in the courts. It blows my mind what people are willing to put up with because they're afraid of risk. It is just incredible. This has to do with six or seven deep of uh, Trump associates being hauled into things, right? There is Mm -hmm. so much risk aversion among political parties, judges, commentators, whatever, to just say what they think things are. What's the blowback going to be from voters? What's the blowback going to be from those voters? What would happen if this happened? What happened? It's like the very fabric of like underpinnings of our legal system are basic guidelines that we're too scared to enforce. And that, that bugs me because we're so willing to do it when there's no risk. We're so willing to take like the punk kid and just throw the book at him because they don't have anybody to defend them and they don't do anything. And we're so scared to tell the corporation, please, maybe you should dial back on this or for the corporation. So this another football piece because it's coming up to the very end of the NFL season. There's a lot of football news, and apparently I'm being fed nothing but football news from Apple. So but the, the idea being that like um, Aaron Rodgers was on an ESPN program doing a bunch of anti-vax stuff and saying that Jimmy Kimmel, the talk show host on ABC, was a vax, was going to be on the uh, Jeffrey Epstein list. Is that all track with you? Have you heard this story? Absolutely. Yeah. And the, Pat McAfee is the show he's on. Pat ESPN McAfee. Always, Jackass. They've always got, they've always got some He's like a, he's like a Bush League Joe Rogan. They put him in a tank top. He's, he's clearly got, had some like a hair yeah. treatments done. Stuff. And so he has a very particular look and, um, 
they're they're boosting him like nobody's business and um, they always have somebody like this and uh this is the new guy so what happens he says this says these awful things about making an insinuation that jimmy kimmel has been having sex with underage girls with jeffrey epstein and that the world will find out which is a pretty I'm not a lawyer, but that's a pretty slanderous thing to say. Aaron Rodgers makes this claim. Aaron Rodgers made that claim about Jimmy Kimmel. Well, now here's the problem, because they're both owned by Disney. So Disney is now in a very interesting position where they could make a statement on something controversial. They could say, hey, listen. Which they haven't shied away from in recent years. To some degree, well, they, this is what they do. They, they, as soon as it's no longer risky to do so. They wait until it is so obvious that public opinion is so obviously on their side, that the metrics are on their side, that they will Mm -hmm. then do it. Like, Mm -hmm. it's their risk aversion that has put Disney into the shit show it is with the Marvel movies. They decided not to buy anything new. We just need to put it all in IP that people understand. Make another Iron Man. Make another Avengers. Find another comic book character that some people will know because I'm, there's no way I could possibly come up with a new story and tell it to you. And that, like, that's like Disney's whole life. Here's, here's an animated version of it. Here's a live version of it. Here's a stage version of it. Would you like this into 16 different direct-to-video things for your kids that are mass-produced in Korea? Here's that. Like They are so risk averse that you can't even say something obvious like it's wrong to impugn somebody by suggesting they're a sex offender because they support getting vaccinated (laughs) i just i like disney is and they haven't said a word this is one of their problem children espn picking on one of their money makers abc and yet no word so this is taking this down a little bit of a different track, but I do think in terms of telling news stories, I think Disney as Disney is willing to tell news stories, whereas Disney's subsidiaries, it doesn't necessarily want telling news stories. If it's you're, you're saying uh, they're cranking out what superhero movies yeah. that are not that are not new or interesting, I buy that. I believe that. But Disney as Disney, I think, is doing a really good job of putting out animated films that are new and interesting and topical hmm. and that, that really provide something of value to the populace in the same way that, say, Greek tragedy provided something valuable to the Greeks. Right. So Frozen or Moana or even um, Encanto, these are new and interesting stories that are really compelling and that are providing value to people, and that stories that haven't been told before, moments that haven't existed before, emotions that haven't been expressed before. And I think Disney doing its core Disney business, in other words, animated movies plus Disneyland, is willing to take risks. Yeah, it just, I agree. I think that there are obviously creative risks that Disney takes all the time, but it's not just Disney. It's like corporate America and government America and courts America are just, man, they're just getting bullied around so badly by people because the people just like stop caring. It's, it's, it's like all these norms, right? There's like all these norms of how you do this. Oh, you, you said this horribly racist thing. We pull our funding and then we put it yeah. right back because we, oh, yeah. we still need all the, like there's no one will ever take a stand against absolutely anything as long as there's a buck to be made. And America's weird like that nowadays. We used to be very be- good about calling out bullshit. It seems like we don't. Okay, that's it. Those are the three things I've been thinking a lot about whether or not I'm tethered into this reality because of the things around me, why we've all become so cowardly to stand up for any ideals anywhere, and the idea that the closer we look at anything, the more it falls apart and everything is just uh, into entropy and going down a bottomless hole of avarice. (laughs) That was my week, Danny. 
<laughs> what a week, Pete. Pete, something else I'd like to talk about. Heck yeah, buddy. This is a weightier topic, I think. Pete, I'd like to talk about what numbers we care about. Ooh, yeah. These are the things that arrest our attention. And you know what, Pete? You ever had an existentialist moment? I don't, know, I don't mean existential. I mean existentialist. We're talking about Sartre. We're talking about Camus. We're talking about these guys, these French dudes who— uh, And German. And German. Can you name any German existentialists? Heidegger, Nietzsche, Hegel, Husserl. Good work. This <laughs> is like the two braids, the continental philosophy, like the German, the French, and occasionally the Scandinavians. <laughs> That's how it works. It's like, it's like occasionally, you know, Kierkegaard comes in. So, Pete, if you've ever had an existentialist moment where everything seems meaningless, and this is how I define existentialism, is everything seems meaningless, and you're sort of struggling to figure out, okay, what actually counts in this in this multitude of meaninglessness, in this world where everything doesn't seem like it matters, what actually counts? And I'm going to say that for the middle brow dad in 2023, there's a certain set of numbers usually numbers, could be something else, but there's a certain set of numbers of things that actually count. I love this. What is it? I want to know. Let me give you mine. Yeah. All right. So three things that I've experienced recently that regardless of whatever existentialist crisis I'm actually in, these three things actually matter and actually count. One is how the stock market moves when you have money in it. You always care about that (laughs) if you're looking for meaning in your life and you have some amount of money in the stock market it will always be interesting i don't care what kind of deep crisis right i'm in i will always care whether you got a green plus or a red minus it's kind of like a fantasy football team right you you sort of put you know you follow some quarterback from some other team that you don't know that much about and you didn't remember when they were drafted but all of a sudden you like get into their background you know how they perform you know all this stuff it creates it creates a lot of meaning. It creates something that matters. And and again, I could be in the deepest of deep existentialist crises and I care. I still care. <laughs> yeah, that right. still matters. Right. I still care sure. whether whether the stock, mar- stock market. I follow that. I like it. It's weird, but I like it. Second is my weight. That's even weirder. Well. Let me ask you this. How much do you weigh? 180. I had a couple ciders, probably 183. And how tall are you? 6'3". 6'3", 183. And you're yeah. concerned? Well, if you look at my BMI, the ideal range for my BMI is roughly 175. Dude. I've also had doctors tell me I'm skinny fat. I'm a little uh, off. You're skinny. A little off kilter. Dude, I am six foot. I'm probably six foot these days. I used to be six one, but I think I'm probably closer to six foot. And I'm 202. So that's the funny thing about dad bod is I look at, <laughs> I look at your dad bod and I think like, fucking great. <laughs> I'd love to look like that. You know what I'm saying? And here I am. You're you're taller than me, 20 pounds thinner than me, and concerned that you're obese. This is what I'm saying. This this is the existentialist problem. It's not so much what am I doing in life. You have lost all perspective. It's, it is a loss of perspective. Nevertheless, that is one of those numbers. Just get gout, drink, be a king, be like everybody else. Just go Dude. down swinging for the hedonism. But the weight is another thing where- uh, How often no, do you weigh yourself? It's every day. Every day? It's every day, and the reason for that is because if I do it every day, it keeps me accountable. 
Yeah, I think that. I think I think that there's like a lot of studies that show that people who track their weight on a daily or weekly basis tend to be thinner. Yeah. Like you're just it's top of mind, right? I don't feel like mental health wise doing it every day is necessarily a good thing. Well, I don't Why know. Why is it bad? Actually, actually, I, mental that health sounds like a hang up. That sounds like a hang up. Like who gives a shit? You check your weight every day. No, I do it every day because that keeps me vigilant. It keeps me Do you work on your weight every day? Are you constantly thinking about eating less and exercising more on a daily basis? Not every day for my entire life, but right now yeah i'm on it because when i turned 40 you got the brochure you got the glossy brochure right? i did it was lovely yeah i did a lot of yeah i ate a lot i drank I, a lot right i did a lot yeah and but, i gained a lot of weight yeah so what you're saying let me, let me see if i could rephrase this you were saying that both a stock price a market price on something that you own or your current weight are things that draw you back to reality yep despite some the exist- somehow of like uncertainty that we face in our day-to-day lives. You are grabbed and focused back by both the index prices of your stocks and your weight. Is that right? That is exactly okay, right. Okay, what's the last one then? Those are two. Oh, index- I've got another. I've got another. I want to hear it. But let me, let, let me elaborate a little bit on what you just said because, yes, that is exactly it. And when I'm unsure as to what, what matters and what counts, I always know that these things count because no matter how lost I get in the sort of philosophy and spirituality or whatever of the world, I can always say, hey, you know what? These things matter. These you're like, numbers matter. You're like the mathematic version of Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> like, what do you mean? What do you mean? So, you know, like Nine Inch Nails, like uh, flirting with sadomasochism, right? Like, yeah. I can stab myself with this needle. The yeah. only thing that's real. And what you're that's saying right. is the only thing that's real is your weight and this particular index number. The two that's things it. that that's are it. reality that's to you. It. That's it. The this is the millennial nails. version of, of angst. It's the millennial <laughs> version of I want to fuck you like an animal. That's it. Okay. You know what? So Trent- wait, wait, wait. What's the other one then? I got I to gotta hear what the other Nine Inch Nails, I feel back to reality through pain and, and refinement. So this is defunct. It's n- it no longer counts oh. because I've oh. abandoned this because it became oh. too pernicious. But it's-, it's Too much? Yeah, a little too much. But this the other thing that was my ranking in this- card game that I was playing online called Lost Cities. Do you ever play Lost Cities? No. Rainer Kinesia, you know, uh, remember that guy? Okay, he's uh, a he's a board game virtuoso. Yeah, I know the I know these kinds of things. Yeah. I know I, I I'm more of a electronic gaming kind of guy. You're a video game guy. Yeah. I'm a board game guy. Right. Although I'm a D and D guy. You're not really a D and D guy. No, I'm not a D and D guy. You should play some D and D. I've played some D and D. You don't like it? Okay, we don't have to get hung up on it. Well, you just tell me about your board game here. Let's not gonna... get high centered on D and D. Let's not get high centered on the. Look, D and D is a highly contentious topic, and <laughs> we not to get sidetrack on that. Let's put a pin in D and D so we can move on to the board game. So the third number. Yep. And I'm going to quiz you after I'm done here. Okay. But the third number. I have three numbers and they're not as whimsical as yours. But they matter. Oh, for sure. And they pull you out of that existential angst. Right? Yeah, like smelling salt to your existential Ooh, angst. It that's just what they are. It wakes you right up and draws you right into it. They're, these are the existential, existentialist smelling salts. Yeah. These the third, are the numbers that are your existentialist smelling salts. That's right. The third number for me was my online ranking in Reiner Kinesia's game Lost Cities, which is a 
fabulous, fabulous card game. And I ascended to 14th ranked internationally on this game. And I love this game. It's so much fun. I had to eventually pull the plug because it was just too much. It just took over. It's just, it just took over. But now you're watching your ranking and seeing yourself be brought back to horrible reality. That's it. That's exactly right. It's just like somebody grabbing you by the eyelids and pulling you down to the ground and making you realize what's happening. You know what, Pete? That's what it is. It's exactly like that. That's exactly what it feels like. And so I pulled the plug, so I don't care about that one anymore. Ah, I see. But the other two remain viable as things smelling salts to pull me back from the brink of existential crisis. Right, you just get yourself broke into like ennui and then untethered from humanity. And then you just wander out there just going insane and solipsism. These are the numbers that bring you back. But Pete... I didn't share those numbers for our listeners. <laughs> I shared those numbers to draw you out Ooh, I've got so numbers. that our listeners can hear your numbers. What are the numbers that are the smelling salts that bring you back from the brink of existentialist crisis? I have three, or I guess I'm going to go through three. The first one is probably, sadly, APR. I spend a lot of time thinking about annual percentage rate right now and how much it is and where my debt and credit and whatnot are. Can you expand just a little bit on what APR is and means to you? You know, your annual percentage rate. So like if you have like, uh, you're trying to get a home loan and now it's up to what, like 7%, 8%. You try to like balance that out to like how much money extra is that for this investment or that investment. Like I find that troubling. That's one of them. I don't know if that pulls me back to reality or not. I do have one number that I look at hundreds of times a day, and that's my daughter's T1D blood sugar number, which I just know like the back of my hand at any given moment based on her little like, uh, I have this thing called a Dexcom, which sends like what her blood sugar. Can you give a little bit of background? On yeah, I have an eight-year-old who has type 1 diabetes, and so her blood sugar is sent to me on my phone, which means I look at it all day, and it tends to be a three-digit number. You want it to be at about 110. A normal person like you or I, Danny, probably our blood sugar is between, I don't know, 85 and 120, any point. Hers can obviously go up to four, five, six, 800, right, where you die because your blood sugar is too much. Or it can also get too low. So I spend a tremendous amount of time looking at these numbers all day, every day. It's a number you follow deeply because it reflects your ability as a parent to keep your daughter alive essentially even more than that certainly that's true but even more than that it's a quantification of how good a job i am doing managing her diabetes and that's insane right like that's that number sucks that number is like one of those countdown to armageddon clocks like it's just going to go backwards and you know like if you knew the date of your death and then someone started a clock timing it backwards that's what it feels like. It's just this constant, like, this is how good of a job. This is what I'm doing. This is what ha- this is how much time I have. This is what I have to do with it. I hate it. It's a set of numbers. It's the worst set of numbers in my life. But one that constantly, this is the thing, right? Existentialist issues are quickly solved by real problems. By real problems of which you've enumerated two. What's the third number? Dude, I don't know. I don't think there are any other numbers. Dude, you don't have to have three. I don't have three. I've only got the two. Of numbers. Although I spend a lot of time thinking about how much weight I actually add at the gym. I don't worry so much about my weight, like my personal, how heavy I am, but I do pay a lot of attention to how much I can lift. That's a good number. It's a weird number, but I do. Like it's a number of progress for me. You care about that. 
no I matter. I don't know if I do. I'm just trying to think about numbers that I care about, and it's like it's one that I know. I know nice. what I can bench, what I can squat, what I can front squat, what I can press, what I can strict press. You know it, and you're tracking it. Yeah. And if it right? goes up, you feel good, and if it goes down, you feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think about it a lot, but it's certainly a set of numbers that I rely on all the time. Well, I will say that I'm I'm surprised that you have those three because me, for me, it's it's very clear that I follow these particular numbers and yeah. indexes and whatever. But you're a numbers guy. See, I'm like I'm like an I'm like a letters guy. You you are like math analytic philosophy. I'm continental philosophy. I'm over there. I I know the names of German and French existentialists. You only know the French. <laughs> That's what you get for being an Anglo-American, math-centric, reality-based philosopher. And that's what I get for loving the French. The bringers of culture to the Western world. I want to talk about something different from what we've been talking about. Pete, how do we feel about our dad bodies? Because when I look... Conflicted. And I'll tell you why I ask this question. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a little bit of a dad bod, but when I look around at other dads, I can't imagine that any of them, all the dads that I see when I do this looking around, I can't imagine that any of them like love their dad bodies. Do you not love your body? Me? Yeah. Not really. I mean, I'm working towards it. I'm right. it's not what I want, but I'm I think when you it. become a dad at some point when your priorities shift completely away from you, That's at least it. for the most part, That's right? It. Like it's like uh, it's my kids, my family, it's my job, it's my house, I don't know. That's it's what matters. All these things, right? Like the last thing that matters is how good you look. Except that it does bother you all the time and you think about it and you see Jairus sucking away your life energy. But it is the last thing that matters. It matters way Less. behind yeah. Way behind your kids, way behind your marriage, and also it matters behind the like sort of capturing of critical moments, which you do by being like, you know what, I feel like shit. I'm gonna I'm gonna drink half a bottle of wine and feel better. Let me ask you a question: If you see somebody who's in their let's say 60s, who's in really good shape, I mean like like a dude, you're sort of Jack Lalane, like like Jack Lalane, like you'll you'll run into him all the time in any kind of city. You'll you run into him. rich people there. who have just got nothing but time to. Mm-hmm workout. And so you'll see some of these, like, especially dudes, you see like these older dudes who are kind of jacked and they're wearing like a lot of beige colored athleisure wear that's really well tailored. It's like, I just kind of think less of you. I just kind of assume your priorities are wrong. Like you're spending all this time on looking like this. Don't you have people that care about you that you think are more important? Pete, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in what you just said there, because That's a really interesting point of view where you take that fitness and you take that whatever it is, thinness or strength or whatever, and you kind of flip it on its head and you say, huh, you've got a six pack at age 45. You must be doing something wrong. Yeah, your priorities are in a weird place. That's a really interesting take on that. To some degree, it's kind of like being a billionaire. The only way to be a billionaire is to, is to completely organize your life around that money. Yeah. And so if you completely organize your life around your body or your health or your fitness or your money, it, it, I'm not sure that I'm right to judge people like that, but I do. But I don't know what I would judge somebody right for. Like like if you're if you're a soft pudgy, jovial guy. Have you done it right? <laughs> you know, is that what success is? I, I don't I don't know. Speaking of success, though, let me just throw this in here. And this is a quote, Pete, as as you know, 
what the listeners may not know, I've written a number of books. And one of those books is about millennial unhappiness. And one of the questions that I ask in the Q&A or FAQ section of one of the books is... By the way, this FAQ section is the best part of that book. It's good. I love it's fun. that. It's, it's a fun. great piece. Of, oh, sorry. I shouldn't be interrupting you. But it's a great piece of forb. Hey, you can, if you want to sit here and <laughs> praise my book, you can interrupt me all it's you want. It's my favorite part of your book is the Q&A format of it. It's just one of those things that like, I didn't realize I wanted to read things this way and I do. It's I want more fun. authors to adopt it. Yeah, absolutely. So in any event, one of the questions is, how do you know if you're succeeding in your 30s? And the answer that I give is, well, there's a lot of ways to think about that. But if your 401k is expanding faster than your waistline, you're doing about as well as anybody can reasonably expect. And I think that for me, that rings true in that I don't want to see my waistline expand. And look, body positivity, this sort of liberal NPR value of like, we got to be okay with whatever our bodies look like. I respect that. It just doesn't work for me. Right. Except you see it in others. When I see you look it in others. At all, you, it works for me in the third person. I can look at other people and say. You forgive them, but not you. I forgive them, but I don't forgive me. It doesn't work. The idea is that you have to forgive you, buddy. But I look at that's other people. Starts. I look at other people and I say, that's great. I see where your priorities are. And they're not in, in like, you're not trying to be Jack LaLanne. You're trying to be a really good dad. Yeah. And I appreciate that and I respect that. But when I look at myself, it's harder to do that. And I look and I think my dad bod is not what I want and it needs to be better. Yeah, but that's like, you need to look at some Buddhism, man. That's the kind of stuff that ends up driving you insane. That's the kind of stuff that makes you turn into a Jack LaLanne. So pretty soon we see you and your wife and your two beautiful boys and it's just Danny being ripped, glistening, just putting oil on himself. Yeah, it's going to be great. I love it. If you're a dad. I am. You are. But if one is a dad. If one is a dad, if any of our listeners are dads and you're thinking, God, why can't I get my body down to how I want it? What you need to imagine is Pete looking at you and looking at your body and looking at your thin, ripped, tanned, six-packed body just and just saying, missing it. you're missing the point. Whatever. Pussy. You're missing the point, man. <laughs> yeah, you look good. But you're missing the fucking point. You are following the wrong idea. You, that, sir, are nothing. <laughs> That's the problem. Is like if you're going to be like some ripped cool dude, like it only works if you're super, super rich where you have nothing you care about or you're young. Outside of that, you look like somebody who's eats children or something like that. Like, <laughs> dude, what are you even doing here? Anything you're in the wrong place. Anything else? You're missing. You're missing the point of life. Yeah, I don't think you're experiencing what you should be at this state. Although maybe that's the whole point. It's like, what what do I care what you are? I don't know. I don't know if somebody can be a good dad and spend two hours a day on their body too. You can do both. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why do they all have to be drinking like us on their off time? You know what I mean? It just seems weird to me. It just makes me uncomfortable. When I see somebody who's just like Pete, really Pete, young Pete. looking and ripped, you're like, you're like, how do you have the time? Pete, don't come after drinking. Drinking is important. <laughs> That guy probably drinks too. Hey, 
thanks for listening to the Middle Brown Multiverse. If you'd like to join our army of subscribers, you can do so at patreon.com slash multiverse. There's a free option or a paid option that gives you access to bonus episodes that you might enjoy.